This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. I'm Tanya Thompson, horror writer and creator of Nightlight, the Black Horror Podcast. This week we have a story from an author that I actually had not read before, Lamar Giles. And after reading his story and with the interview that I had with him after uh, the story, I'm really excited to read what he has next. I'm really excited to read more of his work, and I think you will be too. Wilson's Pawn and Loan by Lamar Giles. It has to be here. The woman's conviction was weak. Mr. Wilson said I had 90 days to claim it. She tapped the handwritten claim ticket with his father's signature on it for the fifth time. See, I'm only a week late. For the fifth time, Eddie read it. Item 103-297-54-A. Gold, heart-shaped locket and chain, quantity one. His father's prissy, neat signature verified the ticket's authenticity. Like she said, she was a week past the agreed-upon claim date. Still, he felt no better. Eddie had been in charge of the shop for the last three weeks, and he hadn't sold the woman's locket, which meant his father had reached the agreement. No surprise there. Eddie, Pop had told him on more than one occasion, sometimes you can tell they ain't coming back. If you got a buyer in the door looking to pay top dollar, you got to look out for the shop. Yeah, he thought, try telling her that. The woman let out a series of hitching sobs that had Eddie scared she might go into an asthma attack. I shouldn't have done this. Things were tight, but I shouldn't have done this. I could just be looking in the wrong place. Another lie. He knew where Pop kept the good shit. How about I keep looking? It might turn up in a day or so. He didn't know why he said it, but hope glistened in her watery eyes. She blinked away her tears. Really, you do that? Eddie swallowed hard. Sure. Thank you so much. She flipped over her claim ticket and scribbled her name and number. Please call me here as soon as you find it. On her way out, Eddie couldn't help but notice the thin patches at the elbows of her sweater and the peeling on her stretched too small skirt. A nylon rag tied her hair and the sole of one shoe flapped like a jawbone. All that going on and she still managed to scrape up the required $90 to buy back her locket. He wondered whose picture he'd find in it, if it were possible to find it all. Chimes sang when she opened the door. At the threshold, she said, Your father would be proud of you, little Eddie. Then the pneumatic arm swung the door shut behind her. Eddie said, You must not have known Pop very well. He was alone again in a prison of other people's things. 
thanks a lot, Pop. Then, as an afterthought, bastard. The blanket of night had been draped over the birdcage that was Portside, Virginia. Eddie sat under yellow light bars in the empty store while his mother detailed the many feasts she'd prepared just because. Ma, you don't have to. Why are you slaving over a hot stove on a Wednesday? I told you. Fine, fine. I'm about to close anyway. Okay, I'll lock up and come straight home. Love you too. Bye. Eddie hung up and checked the five alarm clocks priced from 10 to $30 next to the phone. 6.45, 15 minutes until closing. He tapped the register. His plan? Eject the tape and do the day's accounting at home. He nearly wet himself when he glanced up and saw the man leaning over the knife display. Shit, he shrieked, stumbling off his stool. When did you come in? I hadn't heard the door chimes. Only a moment ago, the stranger said. His voice was a mix of Barry White and Darth Vader, soothing and terrifying. I wanted you to finish our conversation with your mother before we concluded our business. He stood more like unfolded to his full height. Easily seven feet tall, he could dent the plaster ceiling panels with his head if he suddenly hopped. He wore a dark fedora, and a pale jaw was the only part of his face visible beneath the brim shadow. His trench coat was black, its sash double-knotted and cinched so tight around his narrow waist that the bottom portion flared like a ball gown. Eddie couldn't see his feet beneath the hem. Somewhere in the back of his mind, something irrational screamed, That's death, man! What business do you and I have, mister? None. The stranger glided to Eddie's counter. My dealings are with your father. Are, not were, present tense. This guy didn't know that Pop was dead. If he was death or an agent of, he hadn't been checking his email. Eddie relaxed and cursed his silliness. I'm sorry to tell you this, but my dad passed away almost a month ago. Usually, folks offer their condolences when given the news. This man reached into the inner flap of his coat and returned with a creased yellow slip of paper. He placed it on the counter. I have a claim ticket. Eddie retrieved it. The slip was warm with the stranger's body heat. He was instantly disgusted, but it passed. Unfolding the slip, he saw the shop name first, Wilson's Pawn and Loan, except the and was an ampersand. The place was called Wilson's Pawn and Loan, not Wilson's Pawn Ampersand Loan. It used to be the other way when Eddie was still a kid, but he remembered when Pop changed it. An S Ampersand K menswear had opened on the same street as the shop. Shortly after, a billboard went up for the country western radio show Donkey Ampersand Kim in the mornings. Eddie had come home from school one day and overheard his father ordering a new neon sign in stationery. He suddenly felt the store's name was too much like the white folk. Still, though unusual, it wasn't impossible for the guy to have a ticket from back in the day. Whatever he'd come to claim was surely long gone, but the ticket could exist. It was the next bit, the item below the old letterhead, that proved the guy was trying to run some kind of game. It read, one. Okay, man, what's the deal? I've come here to claim what's mine. With a fake ticket? He showed no emotion, no signal that he was busted or embarrassed or offended. The ticket is genuine. Please collect my merchandise. It was time to school this joker. Pay attention, okay? I'm going to show you why this ticket can't be real. He walked to a slip of paper under spotless glass on the wall behind him. See this? This is a carbon of the first claim ticket my pop ever filled out. The fedora brim tilted in the direction of the frame. 
The item number on this ticket is two. The reason it's not number one is because my dad messed up the first ticket and had to throw it away. So your ticket can't be genuine. The item number one ticket was gone before I was even born. And your father isn't above lying, of course. There was no inflection, no indication that the words were a question or a statement, but Eddie's mind created its own implications. Defensive now, fine, you want to play games? Since you've got the very first claim ticket to ever come out of here, let's see what it's for. He read the description. An umbra stone? What's that supposed to be? It's about this size. With hands as ghostly pale as the exposed portion of his face, he indicated something roughly the size of a ping pong ball. An oval cut ruby. It looks like a ruby. It is a ruby. <laughs> yeah, right. Eddie pointed to the jewelry display next to the stranger's left. As you can see, we carry a wide array of all the finest stones, from quartz to precision-crafted cubic zirconias. Unfortunately, rubies are currently out of stock. Beyonce and Jay-Z cleaned me out like an hour ago. No smile, scowl, or anything from the stranger. It would be in the safe, the one in the floor, beneath the filing cabinet. Sweat beaded on Eddie's chest and back, pasting his undershirt to him. That safe was his father's most closely guarded secret. Even Eddie hadn't known about it until the old man revealed the combination on his deathbed. When he'd passed the knowledge on to his mother, she was as shocked as he. Of course, he'd checked the safe since his dad's death. Nothing there but $200 cash and some pictures from old titty magazines, but this guy even knowing about it was unsettling. What do you say your name was, man? Still expressionless. Check the safe, please. Without another word, he trudged into the office, slid the file cabinet aside, pried up the floor tile with his house key, and spun the dial left, right, left. The door swung outward, and for a moment he saw what he'd left in the safe the last time he opened it. Legal documents regarding the store and dust. He blinked. When he looked into the safe again, the air wavered like gas fumes on hot asphalt. He blinked again. A small bundle rested in the safe now. What the hell? He reached for it, hesitated, then grabbed it. Something was rigid beneath the dirty cloth. He tugged at the folds of the rag and revealed an angular red facet. Eddie glanced towards the front of the store. From there, he couldn't see the stranger and the stranger couldn't see him. Yet, he had a feeling that the stranger would know exactly what he'd found. Fuck it. He tried his hardest not to think about the fact that he couldn't have overlooked this item in the tiny safe. Just give it to him, whatever gets him out of here. He swung the safe door closed and returned to the storefront. It's weird, but I guess you were right, mister. Please take it and go. I'll get a bag for you. The bags were under the counter. He kneeled to retrieve one, scanning the cubby holes beneath the register while he unwrapped the jewel. His fingers tingled. He looked to the stone, the apparent source of the pins and needles. Oh, God. His throat cinched like a fist. His heart raced like a rabbit in a snake cage. The flat face of the ruby was a translucent red window the window to a cell. In that cell, a small, naked man pressed his face to the glass. His little fist pounded silently. His screams went unheard, at least in this world. Eddie didn't mean to speak. His body remembered how to breathe, though, forcing him to suck down a lung full of air and immediately vomited back up in the form of a single word. Pop? He stood quickly and backed into the work table behind the counter. His feet scrabbled at the floor. He was going nowhere fast. The stranger extended one hand, palm up, and said, Hand over my property, please. He was smiling now. That's my property you're holding, the stranger said again. 
give it to me. What is this? Eddie held up the ruby. What's going on? That chalky grin widened. I don't think I really have to tell you. I believe you're smart, despite the things your father told me. You can figure it out. Maybe. In the back of his mind, there was a theory, a twitching, scurrying thing that wanted to come into the light. Eddie shut the hatch on it, refusing to go there. Who are you? I can't figure that out on my own. At one time, I was a silent partner in this, he sneered, his fedora brim swaying like a turret as he surveyed his surroundings. Establishment. It's all yours now, as soon as I collect my dividends, that is. My father didn't have any partners. He opened this shop up with his own blood, sweat, and tears. He realized he sounded like a human recorder playing back his father's tired spiel verbatim. Again, if Big Eddie said it, then it must be true. This guy was crazy. That's all it was. Simple solution for that, though. Look, I don't know you, and I don't know your BS. You've got to go. I'm calling the cops. Not taking his eyes off the man in black, he scooped up the receiver. Instead of a dial tone, he got screams. Don't give me to him, son. If you ever loved me, don't give him the stone, please. Eddie slammed the receiver back on its cradle hard enough to crack the plastic casing. The stranger chuckled, a low grumbling like gears in a huge clock. No more denying something that wasn't right here. This was beyond the scope of an off-his-rocker customer. This was supernatural. Evil. Eddie snatched the pump-action shotgun from the catch beneath the counter. You've got five seconds to get out of here. The fedora tilted sideways. The expression beneath the brim nonplussed. You're throwing me out? I thought you wanted to know my name. It's going to be victim if you don't roll up out of here. The stranger held up his clenched fist, knuckles down. The fingers uncoiled and two red shells the size of sea batteries bounced, then rolled off the counter. You may want to load it first. Eddie worked the pump. No shells ejected. The gun was empty. He dropped it and ran for the back of the store, slipping the stone into his pocket. At the exit door, he twisted the thumb latch and lunged into the alley. Only, it wasn't the alley. His hips collided with the countertop. The stranger's open hand was inches from his face. Somehow, someway, he was back where he started. My name is R.S. Skinner. He lowered his hand. I met your father long before you were born. Helped him accomplish select goals. He, in turn, made a promise. I imagine you can guess what that promise was and that you understand what it is you hold in your hand. It's a rock. That's all. Let's stop this game, little Eddie. You know what it is. It wasn't the bright, shimmering red of Dorothy's slippers. The ruby was murky, the color of scabs, yet clear enough for him to see his father inside. It wasn't his father, though, not exactly. Men of flesh and blood don't shrink to fit inside jewels. But what of their spirits? Like the stranger, Skinner, said, he knew what it was. Are you... He took a deep breath and forced the question that had to be asked. Are you the devil? Hardly, but we do deal in similar goods, he huffed. <laughs> the devil. Maybe you are as dense as Big Eddie claimed. Indignation stabbed Eddie's stomach. If you met my dad before I was born, then there's no way he could have said that about me. If I have no reason to sully your father's name, he did that well enough on his own, wouldn't you agree? Eddie said nothing. 
I met him before you were born, and we've spent much time together since. Often, it was Atlantic City where our paths crossed. Blackjack was his game. Whenever he went on a losing streak, he'd bring you up. Funny, he always equated you with bad luck. Nice try, buddy. You've got the wrong guy. My dad never gambled. He said it was just another way for fools to part with their money. Poor little Eddie, still clinging to your father's word like a buoy in a storm. Tell me this, what kind of business trips does a sleazy pawn shop owner like Big Eddie Wilson need to take? Since you've taken his post, have you been invited to any pawnbrokers of America conventions? He opened his mouth to utter some other feeble defense of his dad, another lie. He could not force another untruth past his lips. Another question for you, little Eddie. If your father was so great with finances, where's the money now? Eddie lowered his eyes, not out of fear of R. S. Skinner, though he was afraid, but because he thought the man was reading his mind. He'd asked himself the same questions in the last few weeks. I'm making you uncomfortable, aren't I? Let's talk about something else. Skinner glided to a display case full of everything from iPods to old smoking pipes. He passed his pasty fingers over the glass with a whisper. What a gorgeous pistol. Your father planned on selling it to a man named Lance Darton. Lance works for a criminal group known as the organization, a fixer, if you will. He can't buy guns through the usual channels, but your father didn't judge a man by his colored past. Skinner's fedora rose. It was all green to him. Darton used to pay Big Eddie double for the convenient shopping. Unfortunately, your father died before he could put this baby in the killer's hands. You can't know that, his voice sounded small. Oh, but I can, just like I know you don't doubt what I'm telling you. Why are you doing this? Doing what? I just want my stone. Eddie was tempted to toss the stone into the black shadow beneath his hat. He wanted Skinner gone forever, but something still gnawed at him. As wrong as this whole conversation was, there was something else not right tugging at him. Now that I've met you, I think you would have done all right at Commonwealth University. What? What's that supposed to mean? Skinner's grin returned. Big Eddie used to tell me over the roulette wheel about your desire to teach, that's all. When Eddie was a junior in high school, he'd brought college up to pop. The response was a grunt followed by a waste of time and money. All he saw in his son's future was pawnbroking. After a while, his college dream faded like every other dream he'd had outside of this damn shop. My dad talked to you about my schooling? Only that you wanted to go, Skinner said. Personally, I thought it was a good idea. Well, I already know what he thought about it, so don't bother with the mudslinging. You're right. No need to open old wounds. It's a shame, though, he examined an electric guitar on the far wall. You'd think if he was willing to pay for Terry's tuition, he would have paid yours. Eddie was in motion before he knew he was. He rounded the corner, crossed the sales floor, and yanked Skinner around by his coat arm. From this close, he thought his initial estimation of seven feet might have been conservative. The air surrounding him was radiator hot to the point of discomfort, but Eddie was heated too. Who the fuck is Terry? Merely your father's friend, a female. He had a mistress? I wouldn't go that far, little Eddie. Your father's tastes weren't like that of a young man's. He enjoyed spectating more often than not. 
From what I understood, the young lady was an excellent entertainer. You're saying he paid some stripper's way through school? Don't sound so put out. It's not like anyone was going to leave her a claim in the family business. I believe she's a teacher now. Isn't that something? That mother... He stopped, snatched the stone from his pocket, and directed his anger towards it. You motherfucker! How could you? I'm your son! Don't take my word for it, Skinner said, breathing ice upon him. I'm a stranger, remember? You don't know me from Adam. I could be making all of this up. He wasn't, though. That was the thing. Eddie knew his father was capable of the lying and the cheating. He had a black heart and a bottomless soul, and he hadn't cared about anyone but himself. But, a slithery voice in the back of his mind hissed, who's got his soul now? The little man inside the ruby continued pounding on the walls of his prison. Are you going to give me my merchandise now, Eddie? Something sparked in Eddie's mind, something small and bright enough to be visible through the angry fog that clouded his mind. His mental recorder, the same one that had sucked up so much of his father's bullshit over the years, played back what Skinner just said. Are you going to give me my merchandise now, Eddie? It rewound farther to when he attempted to call the cops and heard his father's shrieking, fearful voice through the receiver. Don't give me to him, son. If you ever loved me, don't give him the stone. That word. Give. Mr. Skinner, I have another question for you. What else do you want to know about Daddy, dearest? No, my question is about you, Eddie said, shaking his head. Why haven't you just taken the stone from me? Silence. You're not a man. I know that now. Why try to outsmart one? That is what you're trying to do, isn't it? Skinner's voice turned indignant. I wanted to open your eyes, Eddie. Your father's been cruel to you in ways you couldn't even see. I just wanted you to know the truth. I thought you just wanted your stone. The air changed. It was hotter than before and crackled with unseen electricity. The hairs on Eddie's neck and arms rose like porcupine quills. Mr. Skinner's coat suddenly seemed too small for his frame. Where he was slim before he thickened, the fabric flexed and bulged like a sack of snakes. I'm going to give you one more chance to hand it over. Eddie stood his ground. If it were that simple, you would have just done it at first. You can't take it from me, can you? Be done with my stone, boy, Skinner spat. You owe your father nothing. He's trapped you in a meaningless existence and erased your future. Give him to me and he'll pay for what he's done. If anyone deserves the torment I have in store, it's him. The guitar fell from the wall. Two display cases exploded. The shotgun shells on the floor went off, spraying the back wall with a buckshot. Through the display window, Eddie saw a car veer off the road, onto the sidewalk, and back onto the road, barely missing a telephone pole. Still, he did not budge. I'm not giving you this stone. Skinner's chest heaved for a few scary moments. Then, his breathing steadied. He shrank back into his previous form and tugged on the lapels of his coat primly. Even after all I've told you, and all you already know, you won't hand him over to me. I don't know what you are, Skinner, but I'm not giving him to you. He's a messed up guy, but he's still my dad. The brim of the hat shook side to side. Skinner lowered his head and spoke to the floor. You're still a cheat, Big Eddie, even in death. Eddie didn't know what that meant. But when the fedora brim rose again, he saw Skinner's eyes for the very first time. There were two rubies, 
umbra stones. In each, his father shrieked and pounded the wall. The stone in Eddie's hand became so hot so fast that he had a second degree burn on his palm before his brain could send a signal to drop it. He let the umbra stone fall to the floor where it shattered into a thousand pieces. It had turned to glass. The man in black turned for the exit. No, wait. Eddie ran to grab him, but he spun, spotlighting Eddie in those blood red eyes. You can't take him. I didn't give him to you. I already have your father, little Eddie. From the moment his final breath left his worthless carcass, he was mine. That's not true. Why, why, why did you come here then? A man like your father doesn't have the power to trade his soul for the meaningless things he desired. His willingness to barter on that level already guaranteed that someone like me would lay claim on his essence when he died. Skinner, apparently done with this conversation, turned to leave once more. Eddie pounded on his back with his good hand. No! You came here for me to give him to you. You can't just take him. Skinner didn't look back when he spoke. I came here hoping you would be willing to give him up. I'd been counting on it. When I met Big Eddie, he was single with his life in the toilet. He told me he wanted a business, money, and women. In return, I needed something that he was capable of coming up with on his own. Then Great couldn't even get that right. An invisible rubber band drew taut and snatched Eddie off his feet and into a display wall. A rainstorm of merchandise followed, showering him, causing bruises, nicks, and cuts. From beneath all the junk, he watched Skinner step onto the sidewalk, watched his black elbows piston as he undid the sash at the front of his coat. The thing that was Skinner shook off the garment, revealing no body, no true arms or legs. There was only a swirling mass shadow and blood. An inky tendril yanked off the hat and tossed it. The shadow split into blotchy wing shapes and flew away. The wind from their wings sounded like his father screaming. What had just happened? He couldn't honestly say. The event was rising and fading from the surface of his mind like cigarette smoke from an ashtray. He pulled himself up, his eyes watery, and went to the glass shards on the floor. Before he could kneel and examine them more closely, a snatch of yellow caught his eye. On the counter, Skinner's claim ticket spun like a top in the draft from an open door. Eddie snatched it up and read the print. It was different from before. Wilson's pawn and loan. Item one. Wilson's corrupted soul. Quantity two. Quantity two? With that, Eddie understood. His father hadn't sold his own soul to R.S. Skinner. He'd offered it as a down payment. The balance was a soul that had yet to be corrupted, a soul that didn't even exist at the time of the deal, a soul that wasn't supposed to care, let alone fight for a loved one. You're still a cheat, Big Eddie, even in death. Today we have with us Lamar Giles, the author of Wilson's Pawn and Loan. Lamar, can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for this story? Uh, sure. Um, Wilson's Pawn and Loan, that's sort of my um, my thesis on the Faustian deal. Um, that concept in horror fiction, I've been a horror reader my whole life. It always fascinated me. Um, it, it, it bothered me that people could deal with demons on the level of selling their soul for profit because um, being raised in church, mm -hmm. it just always occurred to me that if someone's willing to deal on that level, the demon could probably get to them eventually anyway without giving anything right. up. And so it, it just occurred to me, like, if you had to deal and it had to be equitable, what could you offer 
in addition to your own soul. And that's sort of where Wilson spun out of because I thought about the allure of being able to corrupt an innocent and have the demon play that game with someone without them knowing and their own innate goodness would save them. Wow. That's a really interesting twist on the Faustian deal. I'm a big fan of like crossword spirits and things like that. I find them, you know, really interesting. What gave you the idea of wanting to see how someone would corrupt an innocent? Well, probably just uh, having grown up with a odd relationship with my own father, um, him not being very present as I grew up. And I still have a fondness for him. Like we get along well, like there's no, there's no animosity there. And in the case of Eddie and Big Eddie in the story, it just occurred to me that a son who had a much harsher father than mine might be easily tempted to punish that man. But being that Eddie isn't his father's son, he, he hasn't succumbed to the full influence of Big Eddie. It's just not in him to be that bad. And I, I wanted to play with that a little bit and just see how the game of cat and mouse goes. And the fact that Big Eddie always sort of discounted Eddie Jr. smarts. He's smart enough to figure out what's happening with Mr. Skinner and and save himself. And I, I just, it, it, I guess it comes back to the idea that even if the patriarch in your life doesn't do what they're supposed to do, you still have the power to control your own fate and and live well. When I first read it, you know, it, I thought I knew how it was going to go and then it didn't go that way. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I really, I really like that you know, you didn't kind of go with the obvious route for everything. I thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. Well, out of curiosity, now I'd like to know, where'd you think it was going? Well, so I thought, you know, I figured, okay, you know, this guy's here to, you know, trade souls, but I, I didn't see him trading, you know, Eddie's soul. Just, you know, I, I just thought, okay, well, you know, he's going to give him big Eddie's soul and be done with it because, you know, he's not playing no games. He doesn't want to deal with that. And then when it came down to, it's also a bargain for his soul, but he had to give it up, you know, willingly and, or, you know, be tricked into it. I guess I should say that I, I didn't see that part coming, that it was, that it was actually a deal for two souls rather than one. That's what stood out to me. Cause it's usually, you know, when you talk about these bargains, it's usually you can trade your own soul, but you can't trade anyone else's soul. Well, I'll tell you, um, I've not had the chance to talk about this story in many years. Um, it's half Faustian deal and half of it is Rumpelstiltskin. Um, the idea of trading a firstborn child for whatever. So I, I just I just wanted to tell you that's where that part came from. That That's amazing. And I think that's where a lot of the good ideas come from is, you know, you grab something from one place and something from a different place that, you know, people normally wouldn't associate with each other and you bring them together into, you know, a really compelling, fresh story that, you know, people aren't able to predict the ending for and, you know, they, they don't see it coming, even when they think they see it coming. So how did you get started as a writer? When did you start writing? Well, um, I started writing when I was eight years old. I was in third or fourth grade. I can't remember exactly which. And um, our school had this competition called a young authors competition. And up till then, I'd been a prolific reader. My mom was really big on us having books in the house and going to the library. And I never really considered that people actually wrote the stories. I grew up in a factory town next to an army base. So the people I knew were factory workers or soldiers, not writers. Right. So, so when the teacher gave us this assignment to make up a story and illustrate it, 
I sort of went all in. I probably took it more serious than anybody else in my class. And I ended up winning that competition. I, I wrote a story called Giant Dinosaur Inside about a kid who pulls a giant dinosaur out of a cereal box. Oh, that's cool. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, they liked it and it gave me a boost. And ever, ever since then, I've played with words and I, I wanted to see what other stories I could make up. And I never even considered writing being a career until I read It by Stephen King. And when I started to learn more about Stephen King and understanding like that book, he used words that we use every day to make me feel physical fear. I'm like, I got to learn how to do that. Right. And so I spent my teen years sort of playing around, messing with different starts and stops on novels. And I got sort of frustrated because I didn't see people like me in any of the stories I like to read and write. Yeah. Um, so ended up coming back to science fiction, fantasy, and horror, when I discovered people like Tanana Reeve-Dew, Stephen Barnes, Brandon Massey. And when I was in my early 20s in college, I said, I'm going to take a crack at it and ended up selling my first short story. Didn't sell any stories for three years after that, all rejections. Then ended up selling stories to Brandon Massey. And it sort of snowballed from there. I sold my first novel when I was 31 and have been at it pretty much full time since. Awesome. That's amazing. Well, what's the name of your novel? Um, the first novel, okay, so I self-published some novels in my mid-20s, um, and they're more of the horror fantasy stuff like you see in Wilson's Pond and Loan. Um, so some of those novels are called Live Again. I had a short story collection called The Shadows Gallery. Um, I, I co-wrote a fantasy book with a friend called The Serpent and the Stallion, and um, a little some other little things here and there. And as far as Big Publishing, my first novel sold to a major New York publisher, HarperCollins. Um, it's my young adult mystery novel, Fake ID. Oh, oh, young adult. I love young adult stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I hope you give it a try. Absolutely. Um, I've... Absolutely. I'm intrigued now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've published several since. Um, my novel, Endangered, came out after Fake ID. Last spring, I had another mystery come out called Overturn. And in 2019, I have two books out. Um, another mystery called Spin and a middle grade fantasy novel called The Last, Last Day of Summer. Nice. You're pretty busy then. Yeah, yeah. It's been a busy couple of years and it's good to yeah, be busy. Yeah, that's amazing. That's great. So how, so you said you started off self-publishing and then you sold a novel to a New York publisher. How did that process kind of come about? Like what made you decide to start self-publishing and then how did that morph into more traditional publishing? Well, the self-publishing came sort of out of frustration yeah. uh, because I've been trying to sell novels or get an agent rather for many years and just never worked out. And I I knew I could improve as a writer, but I also knew I was writing stuff that was good enough to at least get a second look. And it just wasn't happening. I believed a lot of it had to do with me being a black male. Right. And in the industry I was trying to break into, there's just not a ton of us working. Right. So I decided that I would self-publish while my novel Fake ID was with my new agent. And um, she was getting pushed back trying to sell that to major publishers. And I was just determined not to let strangers in New York determine my publishing fate. Right. And I sort of forgot about Fake ID, just focused on the self-publishing and was actually on a train to a conference to promote my self-published work when I got the phone call from my agent that Fake ID had sold to HarperCollins. Nice. And so I started being more traditionally published right. and um, that's that's mostly been the gig since then. That was back in 2011 when that phone call came. Right. But um, 
you know, I think there's benefits to both sides of it, traditional and self-publishing. So I hope to get back to self-publishing someday. Yeah, definitely. I went to, um, I went to a conference called Blacktasticon, uh, middle of June this last year. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about on one of the panels was how in general, traditional publishers don't necessarily know how to market to a black audience, you know, like, yes, you know, they're, even if you're a black writer, you know, the things you write can be certainly can be mainstream, you know, anyone Mm -hmm. can enjoy a lot of it. But you know, they look at you and they say, okay, this is a black author, they're going to have a black audience. And then they still don't even know how to market to a black audience, because they're still assuming that they, you know, black people don't read or, you know, black people Mm -hmm. aren't, you know, they don't like fantasy or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people said there is that, you know, they wanted to self publish because they felt that they could market their work better than anyone else. And, you know, it kind of got me thinking about as a black writer, if, you know, kind of going that self-publishing route and building your own audience first, and then, you know, letting other people kind of put in their money, to, mm-hmm. you know, grow that would work really well, but it sounds like it's worked well for you. Well, you know, and I always say, I think when you're talking about having a professional writing career, it behooves you to learn as much about the industry as possible. That includes self-publishing, that includes traditional. And what I think happens is, like you said, you have the power to market yourself in a way that a publisher may not care to. Um, But I think it also behooves you to know that certain product may do better in the self-published arena versus traditional. And if you have, uh, if you have the opportunity to explore both, I think there's benefits because I don't think my children's books would do as well self-published as they have through a traditional publisher, just because of the way those systems are set up with libraries and schools and things of that nature. But I certainly believe I have adult work still in me that my traditional publishers may not be interested in. Um, I think I think you want to be as well versed in all aspects of publishing as you can if you're thinking about making a go at it. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I think you know a lot of people overlook the fact that you know writing is a business. You know, you're Mm -hmm. you're you're the products. You know, writing the product. So you know you can't you can't discount that side of it. You know, it's 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 never going to be you just write and that's it. You know, Mm -hmm. blow up Mm -hmm. real big. You know, Stephen King, all he's got to do is write. He doesn't have to worry about anything else. But he had to worry about that, you know, at the beginning. So, you know, I, I think it's important that people think of it as a business as much as they think of it as, you know, a creative endeavor. And to use King as an example, like even after he was Stephen King, I mean, he was still exploring ways to change the business model to his favor. I don't know how much you know about the way his deals work, but he's like a partner with his publishers now. Um so he's not he's not one of the writers that takes advances like the rest of us do. He actually puts money into the marketing, the publication, the printing. And so he splits profits 50-50, where the rest of us get a much lower percentage. Right. <laughs> um, and so that's another example of even if you find success, you got to still figure out how to maneuver in the business right. in ways that are smart for wherever you are yeah. at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, you always have to be thinking. And I, and I do think, you know, traditional publishers... You know, while it's great to be traditionally published and you know, all of that, there's, you know, there's definitely a gap, I think, between, you know, what people are looking for as readers and what traditional publishers are doing to reach them and things like that. I, I feel like there's a disconnect there and writers are much more connected to their audience than 
publishers are. You know, publishers know what libraries and booksellers want, but they don't necessarily know what readers want, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's important, you know, if as a writer, you are involved in that process, you know what your readers want, you know what your readers like, and you're going to be, a, be able to do a better job of reaching your readers than a traditional publisher might. Sorry. A traditional publisher Sorry. can reach booksellers and libraries better than you could. So, you know, looking at it as a partnership, I think, I think that's smart yeah, for sure. So you said you write some young adult middle grade. Um, what, what books do you think are out right now that you would recommend for middle grade YA, you know, anyone out there who's looking for something, you know, written by a black author, you know, they're looking for something yeah. that's horror. Cause you know, that's another thing. Like, you know, there's a lot of young adult middle grade, like people are wanting horror, not a whole yeah. lot of it out there. Um, are there any authors that you could recommend? Certainly. Um, Tracy Baptiste, mm-hmm. um, who does um, a series called The Jumbies, which deals with like um, some creatures of Caribbean folklore, I think would fit pretty well. Um, there's, I have to be careful here. And the reason why I'm a National Book Award judge in the children's category oh, yeah. this year. So I, I can't really publicly talk about new books, okay. um, but I can name authors. Okay. And I'm trying to think of some authors, Justina Ireland, who I think has um, done an episode of the podcast or her story was featured. She's definitely one to check out. Um, Tanana Redu and Stephen Barnes did a couple of young adult novels a few years ago, um, Devil's Wake and I think Domino Falls. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that they had done young adult stuff. Yeah, yeah. There were zombie novels in the young adult space. Jennifer Bosworth um, is a, is an author I enjoy. Um, she's done some stuff with um, supernatural powers and things of that nature. I feel bad because I, I tend to have to like pull out my iPad and look through my Kindle list to remind myself yeah. of stuff that fits. But those are some names that come to mind. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, those are all great. Um, I I read a book last year, year before last, um, called Who Hoodoo. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, by um, Ron Smith, right? Yes, yes, by Ron yes. Smith. And you know, I thought it was like amazing. I was like, if I would have had this book as a kid, like it would have been yeah. lit. Like I was really excited yeah. about it. Um, so you know, I think that it's good that you know that kind of stuff is finally getting out there because I certainly didn't have access to that kind of literature growing up. You know, pretty much all I read was R.L. Stein, Christopher Pike. You know, I didn't read anything. Yep with a black main character in it until I was, you know, well into adulthood. So what would you say influenced you as a writer, you know, knowing that, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot out there that let you see yourself in the literature? Uh, Well, I tell you, honestly, as a teen, I sort of started to hate reading and writing because of that very thing. Um, And it was wholly, the books of Tanana Reeve do and Stephen Barnes that sort of brought me back into the fold. And then I would later discover Octavia Butler, um, come across Brandon Massey, um, LA Banks, may she rest in peace. Um, she's been gone for a while now, but her books were fantastic. Yeah. Um, so names like that sort of made me realize that there were people doing the sort of stuff that I was missing, but we definitely needed much more. And I felt like if I could improve, if I could get my skills up, then maybe I could be one of those contributing people 
And that's sort of where I focused my attention going into the young adult space. I'm like, there's kids out there who were like me. Right. And I can maybe give them the sort of thing I could never find. Right. So I have an eight year old son and, you know, people have, people who have watched some of the videos I've done for Nightlight have seen him, you know, coming in the background, like he's very, very involved. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's, it's just like, he doesn't have to imagine a world, you know, like ours where, you know, he didn't see himself, you know, he's able to read all of these books and all of these stories where people that look like him and have experiences like him, you know, are the main characters in books. And it's just, you know, it's wild to think about the kids growing up today don't know what that's like to not have, you know, that reference that, that you could see yourself in. I know, I know. It's, 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 it's amazing, right? I think about my nephew, um, the fact that, you know, I grew up being a big comic book fan. And I can take him into a comic book store and show him many examples of people who look like him. I mean, Captain America was black for a while. Right. Um, it, it's 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 wild, and I'm happy. I mean, it, it's the sort of thing that we've been working for, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, what would you say? I won't ask you about YA um, or middle grade, but what would you recommend to anyone who's looking to read horror by a black author? in the adult space. Hmm. I'm trying to, because it, it doesn't have to be recent, correct? Correct. Okay. So I really love, and I keep bringing her up because I, I, I've i yet to meet her face to face. It's one of my dreams to meet this author. I keep bringing up Tanana Reed. Right. And The Good House is the sort of thing that chilled me to the bone when I first read yeah. it. And I, I go back to it often. It's one of those stories that's just so, so perfectly done. And just so devastating when you read it. So, like, that's always my go-to. Um, now, I'll, I'll mention something that's more in the fantasy space, but I think there's some dark imagery there that that will align with horror fans. And they, um, have you read any N.K. Jemisin? Yes. Yeah. So you, you're familiar with The 100,000 Kingdoms? Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't read that, though. Okay, so I think that's fantastic. And I think it does some incredible things with, like, deities and how dark that can get. Um, you know, I, I think about growing up and always being exposed to Greek mythology. Right. And even though this is set in a different world where it's not attributed to any culture that we know, the stuff she does with mythology, I think fits a more Afrocentric vibe. Right. And I, I would recommend her work as well. So in terms of films, what would you recommend? Ooh, so films. Um, obviously we've all seen Get Out by this yeah. point. Hopefully. Um, I don't know hopefully, if I this podcast. Yeah, I know, right? I know, right? Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. Let's see. What have I seen recently? Um, I'm looking forward to Lovecraft Country, which is the new show that Jordan right. Peele's supposed to be producing. Mm-hmm. Um, that book was well done. I mean, the thing, it, we, I, I, we know that it wasn't written by a black person, but it's about black people. Um, so that's what else have I seen? I, I I haven't seen a lot of horror movies other than Get Out. I think that feature black folks. Have you seen something you can recommend to me? <laughs> um, actually, yeah. So on Netflix, there's a there's a film called Transfiguration. Transfiguration, right? And it is about a black boy who wants to be a vampire. And I think it's I think it's really well done. It's really it's a really good movie. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, other than that, there's, there's not a whole lot, you know, especially new stuff. I don't think there's a lot of stuff out there. I, I hope that's going to change, you know, especially with the success of Get Out. I think a lot of studio executives are starting to really key in on, okay, well, you know, maybe there's some money to be made. Um, but- oh, I know. Can I back up a second? Can I of back course. up a second? Because some things, um, you'd asked me about books earlier. Anything by Victor Laval. Oh, yes, yes. Anything, I, I, my, one of my favorite things I've read in the last few years is The Ballad of Black Tom. Yeah. And I, when I brought up Lovecraft Country, I was trying to think like why that bothered me so much when that was coming out. And it was because at the time, I didn't know that Be- The Ballad of Black Tom was being adapted. And I was like, oh man, someone's doing Lovecraft Country, but no Black Tom. Right. But I've, Victor announced that they're actually going to be doing a TV series of that. So that is something to read and definitely watch when definitely. it comes out. And they're also doing the Changeling. <clears throat> I heard. I they're heard. doing it as a film or if it's, you know, a series, I'd have to, I'll have to look and see. Um, but he announced that a couple of weeks ago and I was like, yes, because the Changeling was really good. Yes, fantastic. And I, I don't know if you're in the comic books at all, but his, um, his comic book, Destroyer. Ooh which is a take on um, Frankenstein is fantastic. Okay, I'm going to make a note of that. <laughs> I like how we're both so just like, like, you know, trading notes. Like, you know, these are all the things yeah. that we should be listening to or watching or reading. I, I just, I, I, I'm, I read so much. I can hardly ever think of stuff like right off the top of my head. I have to pull my iPad out, but um, yeah, definitely anything by fit. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's great. He was a big supporter of podcasts. You know, he helped um, amplify it when we were, raising money for our first season. So him and Tanana Reeve both have been, mm-hmm. you know, very helpful with getting the word out about the podcast. And Yeah, they're, they're both fantastic. They are amazing. Great people, great writers, just, yeah, all around, all around great. But yes, Tanana Reeve do, I think, you know, her name comes up a lot when, you know, I ask people who influenced them or, you know, what was kind of the first thing that they read. You know, it's her and Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, I think there's something to be said about that. You know, the, you know, it's, it's two black women, but you know, black mm-hmm. men were writing horror as well. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on why perhaps black men haven't been as influential in horror as black women, at least, you know, in the last couple of decades, I think that's changing now, but you know, that I don't think that was always mm-hmm. the case. I think there's just this lasting mythology about black men's place in or men's place in literature where we we just don't read as much. We just don't write as much. And it's like people just don't spend a lot of time trying to push males because there's still this this like self-fulfilling prophecy that that only women are going to read. So we need to push the women writers. Yeah. And if if males break through, they break through. It tends to be on their own. Right. Um I think that probably has more to do with it than anything. And then if you're talking about the black community, I can speak to like growing up in the South, like just the, the, the vibe to not be involved in anything dark or spiritual that isn't right. Um, I can remember growing up and, and enjoying the things I do and the church folks around me is like, you messing with them spirits, you messing with them demons. That's not good. You need to get away from it. And I think, you know, a lot of times that's part of it too. Um, it's just, it's, it's weird in our community how either overtly or covertly we push boys and men away from the written word. And I think that probably has a lot to do with what you asked. 
Yeah, yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, there definitely is. And, I, and you know, I think, you know, too, if you look at schools and things, you know, you see little girls reading a lot more. Whereas if, you you know, you see a little boy reading, like he he's more likely to get picked on. I, yeah, I, yeah, I got picked on. So yeah. I know I know firsthand just like how bad of an idea it was to walk around my neighborhood with a Stephen King. Right, right. Um, and I think a lot of that attitude still persists. I, I like I like that I'm seeing with the rise of like comic book movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like it's it's becoming more accepted to see a young boy walking around at the very least with a Spider Man comic. Right, right. I couldn't do that when I was young. So I mean, I think we're we're having a bit more enlightenment yeah. these days. Things are moving forward. Uh, for sure. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And I think it's amazing that you're a part of that, you know, that, you know, you're writing middle grade stuff and young adult stuff, you know, because I think, I think that that is one of the things that's needed the most right now is, you know, to make sure these kids have these experiences. And as they grow up, you know, making sure that, you know, we're writing things for adults as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's something about having literature that affirms who you are as a child you know, as your, you know, brain is still developing and, you know, all this other stuff, you know, I think, I think that that changes the world more than, you know, adults reading things that affirm, you know, they're both important, but I think they're important in different ways. I agree. Um, A friend of mine, Kwame Alexander, who's a notable young adult author, he's one of the prestigious Newbery Medal. He, um, he makes this joke that, you know, he's given up on the adults and he's just focusing on the kids now. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's just, I mean, not to be cliche and, and ch- you know, children are the future, but I mean, adults have, we're fading out and we're messing up a yes. lot. So we need them to come in and be ready to fix this mm-hmm. garbage fire <laughs> that we're dealing with in society right now. Train them through literature. <laughs> yes, yes. I like that. So, um, can you tell us um, a little bit about, you know, what you have coming up? You know, is there anything you want to sure. promote? Anything you think that we absolutely must read of yours? Tell us everything you want us to know about you. Well, certainly. Um, if anyone's out there and they enjoy mysteries, my my latest mystery novel, Overturns, available. It's about a young poker player in Las Vegas who has to figure out who framed her father for murder. Um, it's got a lot of twists and turns. If you like that sort of thing, give it a try. Yes. Uh, next month. The, an anthology I edited called Fresh Ink will be available, and that features some of the rock stars of young adult literature right now. So um, that's going to be a good one to share with children and adults alike. Excellent. Excellent. In January, my next mystery novel, Spin, which is about two friends who have to solve the murder of an up-and-coming DJ or face the wrath of her online fandom, that will be in stores January 29th. And then my middle grade fantasy, uh, The Last Last Day of Summer, about two cousins who accidentally freeze time on the last day of summer. Oh. That will be in stores April 9th. That sounds amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm in with that. Let's, let's freeze time on the last day of summer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. It's a kind of a new direction for me, writing something supernatural for some an audience so young. Yeah, yeah. But what I can't wait to see, for people to see is the artwork that accompanies this book. We have an artist out of London named Dapo Adiala, mm-hmm. and he's doing some fantastic illustrations that I think are going to blow people's minds. That I can't wait to see it. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited about this. So um, 
can we pre-order any of this stuff yet? Is it up for pre-order? Um, Spin and Fresh Ink are available for pre-order. The last, last day of summer is not quite available yet. But um, my website is lamargiles.com. Mm-hmm. You can go to the books page and find links there. Okay, excellent. So I'll put links in the show notes to pre-order the two that are available to pre-order now. And then when when the link is available for the pre-order of the last, last day of summer, you know, hit me up on Twitter, email or whatever, and I'll post it out on the Twitter account so everyone can can get on that. So thank you so much for your time today, Lamar. I hope everyone enjoyed his story. I'll be sharing those links to the books on in the show notes and tweeting everything out as well as we hear about the last, last day of summer. This week's episode was narrated by Rodney Blue. Thank you for joining us again this week. And thank you to our new patrons, Shronda, Curtis, and Kanisha. We could not do this without you. If you want to help pay more Black authors for their stories, you can go to patreon.com slash nightlightpod, and you can chip in as well. You can also contribute by sharing the podcast or leaving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. We're working on getting on Stitcher now, and guess what? We have merch on our website. Go to nightlightpod.com, and you can snag your very own hoodie or t-shirt. See you next week. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.